From the Carter Subaru Studios, this is Cairo Nights with Jake Skorheim. Welcome back to Cairo Nights. It is the 9 p.m. hour. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us on this Friday night. Listen, if you didn't get a chance to hear the first two hours of the show, totally fine. Not a big deal. I don't take it personally. Maybe a little personally. I do kind of. Uh, I had a really great segment in the first segment with uh, Chris Sullivan and Nate the Great Connors. The Three Amigos segment, which is a really dorky title, but whatever. Three dorky guys hanging out. Feels like it deserves a dorky title. If you get a chance, go back and listen to that. We did not plan on talking about what we talked about for 20 minutes, but Chris and Nate are two crazy guys, and uh, it was ridiculous. Uh, you can check that out on the podcast, is my whole point. The whole thing I'm making here is for you is to send you to the podcast and to say, look up Kyra Nights with Jake Scorheim, wherever you get that, download it, follow it, subscribe to it, mash it down, whatever you got to do, so you don't miss a second of the show. We really appreciate it. All right, let's get to it. Do you guys remember that pay-up ordinance that happened in Washington? Uh, let's see. Back in 2022, just give you a little, uh, little background on this, and then I'm going to tell you where it's at now because not a good place is where it's at now. So back in 2022, you have the Seattle City Council, and the Seattle City Council decides, they say, hey, you know what would be really great? Wouldn't it be fun if in our city of Seattle, where we already have a pretty high minimum wage, actually, what if we could say that we have the highest app-based delivery driver pay? So let's make those companies pay up. So they adopted this ordinance called the pay up ordinance, which is ironic given what happened. Um, They adopted this ordinance in 2022. It didn't go into effect until January of this year, which if you're looking at your calendars is just about a month ago. So what happens in January? This thing goes into effect. And basically what they were saying was our app-based delivery drivers, so you take your DoorDashes, you take your Uber Eats, you take your uh, 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 Instacarts, all them things, uh, the drivers who are driving for those, who are all gig workers, like they might have other jobs, but they can also make some side money driving for these, these places. They have to make a certain wage in the city of Seattle, according to this pay-up ordinance. So what are these delivery services decide to do when this thing goes into effect what these delivery services decide to do is they say hey you know what all of a sudden we are on the hook for paying these drivers way more than the minimum wage in seattle so the minimum wage in seattle is somewhere around 20 dollars an hour i think it's technically it's 19 dollars and 97 cents an hour last time i checked uh so it's not very it's it's uh not what they were trying to make these app-based delivery drivers get paid uh, according to pay up, what they wanted them to make was around $26 an hour. I think it was $26.40 an hour is what it ended up being, uh, according to the Seattle law, but only for drivers for these delivery services. So they weren't saying to every delivery driver in the city, they weren't saying like, hey, everybody who drives a delivery truck is going to make 26 bucks an hour. No, they were saying only for these app-based delivery services you have to make the minimum that those drivers can make per hour is $26.40 per hour. And on top of that, 74 cents per mile and 44 cents per minute or a minimum uh, minimum uh, per offer amount of uh, $5. It's basically what they were saying. Um, so what do these companies do? These companies just say, well, we're just going to raise the cost then. We're going to tack a service fee on. If you're going to force us to pay our drivers more money, we're going to tack on a service fee. And we are going to then pass that along to the customers because, no big surprise, that is how business works. That's what these companies would do. These are private companies. So why? They're not owned by the city, and the city is not handing them money. 
the city's giving away somebody else's money. So the, these companies said, all right, well, I mean, they might be public companies, but you get what I mean. They're not owned by the government. And so the government tells them you have to pay these people more than the minimum wage. And then the company says, all right, well, if you're going to basically give us this big tax and force us to pay more, then we're just going to pass that along to the people ordering food, which is, again, how business works. I don't know why the city of Seattle uh, city council didn't see this. King Five did a story on this uh, just about a just a couple weeks back, and they were looking at this new environment in the wake of this ordinance going into effect, which again was at the start of January. We have more on this. I'm going to get to that in just a second because there have been a lot of downstream consequences after that pay up ordinance was passed. But listen to the story from King Five. They talked to a few of these drivers. This is back in, uh, I believe this is in uh, uh, early February. I think this was uh, early February that they talked to these drivers and they said, hey, how's it going now that this ordinance has passed? Are you making a ton of money? Are you making 26 bucks an hour, which is what you're supposed to be making? Big surprise. No, they're not making that amount of money. So listen to the story. Here it is. That $5 fee you may have noticed now on apps like DoorDash and Uber Eats are not only causing frustrated Seattleites to delete their apps altogether, like I reported last week, but now we're learning the very people this ordinance intended to help are actually hurting. It's just different hotspots. But what used to be hotspots feel a little colder these days. I got one. This was one of few orders. Awesome. Thank you. That this delivery worker on this Sunday was offered. Sundays before the ordinance, we'd be thinking breakfast. Fewer orders. You know, people, they love their breakfast. Sunday today, I don't even touch it. They're not going to order. And it's definitely. I'm going to pause it there real fast just so you can hear that. Sundays used to be a really busy day. They can make a bunch of extra money. Sundays now, according to this driver, doesn't even touch it. It's a waste of his time. He's not going to make any money. He might as well sleep in. Only backfiring. Since January 13th. I've got nothing. I'm not going to stay here for hours for one freaking order. Chipotle. Your jobs have been a lot of waiting for a little reward. So you might have that hour and you literally only made $8 for that hour. That ordinance was meant to improve wages for gig workers. You pay more. The problem is that they're not telling the whole story. And DoorDash, for example, says drivers will get paid more. At least $26.40 per hour before tips in their estimation. Assuming that you are working constantly, then yes, you're going to be making that much money. But that's not what's happening right now because people are not ordering as much anymore. One driver shared how much he made on this week last year, nearly $1,000. But this is what he made this week. And he's not alone. Half. They say they believe they're also competing against more drivers now. And the tips are going down because they think we're making all this money. So don't be surprised if you see big groups of them waiting at the hotspots. For real, we are grinding and we are for real not getting $26 an hour. It's called the pay-up ordinance. It's designed to protect gig workers. Neither of the two Seattle City Council members who originally championed it, Andrew Lewis and Lisa Herbold, are still currently on the council. Mayor Bruce Harrell recently lauded the implementation of the ordinance, saying that gig workers are critical to Seattle's economy. So what's so interesting about this that I find, so Heather Bosch has this great story. It's on MyNorthwest.com. You guys can check it out there. And essentially what they're seeing now, in addition to drivers not having as many orders because people just aren't willing to pay that extra money, like why am I going to pay a service fee on top of the delivery fee, on top of the tip, 
on top of yada, 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 all these different things for like a $9 burrito. If I'm going to order a $9 burrito from Chipotle and I have $10 worth of fees tacked on and tip and all these things that I'd want to give to the driver because they're doing me a service. I appreciate that. I don't have to leave my house. Now we're talking about a $9 burrito, which was 9 bucks, and now is going to be almost 20 bucks for a burrito. No, thank you. I'm not I'm exactly sure on the amount that burritos cost at Chipotle. And this is not a dig at Chipotle. I like Chipotle a lot. Uh, the point is, this is a ridiculous thing that's happening now. Because not only are the drivers not able to make money at this, restaurants are now suffering from this as well. Uh, Heather Boss has a story. You can check it out at MyNorthwest.com. The owner of a restaurant called Spice Walla uh, spoke to Heather, and they said, she sa- uh, the owner says that deliveries are way down. Obviously, that makes sense. If we compare this to January 2024, uh, if we compare January 2024 to January 2023, we've seen a decline of 30% in our business on the third-party delivery apps, which for us given that a large portion of our revenue does come from them, is a very steep impact to the business. This is the owner of the restaurant talking to Heather Bosch. He blames the $5 charge that app companies like Uber Eats and DoorDash have added to delivery fees in Seattle. So, for instance, Heather Bosch breaks this down. For instance, according to this restaurant owner, if we serve a, uh, if we have a, a, a dish that we serve for $8.50 on these platforms and suddenly the customer's paying over $20 for that one dish that originally should be $8.50 if you walked in to get it, that doesn't make financial sense anymore. And somebody's not going to be willing to pay more than double what they are would pay if they just walked up in person. And so instead of walking up in person, they're just not paying. The problem that I have with this, this is not in Heather's story, but this is, uh, this is interesting to me. Um, there is a bunch of folks who are saying that this is DoorDash's fault. They're saying that DoorDash should not be adding this fee. And I just go, well, of course they're going to add this fee. That's how these businesses work. Uh, let's see. What's her name here? Uh, there's a uh, delivery app driver. Her name is Kimberly Wolf. She says uh, she's mocking the delivery app companies who are saying uh, that they have to add this fee on there. She says um, these app companies have been making money off of us for years. This is a quote from Kimberly Wolf. These app companies have been making money off us for years, she said, pointing out that drivers use and maintain their own cars for deliveries. The wear and tear on your car, the gas, all this kind of stuff, we're paying for that. We are their fleet. She And this is, again, this is on the Heather Bosch article. She insisted it's rare for a driver to make $26 an hour because many pickups and deliveries from start to finish take less than an hour. We're only getting money from the time that we accept the offer until the time we drop it off, and that's it. So uh, let's see here. Yahoo Finance reported that DoorDash revenue increased in the fourth quarter of last year by 27% year over year to $2.3 billion. Obviously, that's a lot of money. Spice Walla survives on much slimmer margins. The owner of Spice Walla said, if we do not see an increase in sales in February itself, I don't know if we'll be able to sustain ourselves. Now, again, I would ask you, do you think this is the fault of greedy delivery app companies or... Is this the fault of Seattle City Council members who maybe didn't think too much about what they were implementing? The companies didn't step up and say, hey, you know what? We're going to make it really, really expensive to hire a driver in the city of Seattle. Not anywhere else. You can still drive Uber Eats in Kirkland, and they're getting a lot more orders on the east side than they are in Seattle. But in the city of Seattle, this council member said, you know what? We want to be able to say that the drivers here are making more than anywhere else. 
what was it, $26.40 an hour? And that's if everything's going perfectly, if they're making, like if they're at full capacity. But the problem is that the city of Seattle is trying to give away other people's money, and that doesn't work. This is what companies would do. What I'm kind of surprised by, what I'm kind of shocked by, actually, is that the Seattle City Council didn't think to themselves, hey, you know what? If we're going to give away other people's money, we should talk to them and see what their reaction's going to be. Is that okay for us just to tell companies? And they're not even telling all companies. They're saying, hey, uh, for the rest of you, the minimum wage in Seattle is going to be whatever it is, $19.97 or whatever it is, close to 20 bucks an hour. But for these companies, we're going to kind of target them. We're going to make them pay more money. This just doesn't work. Obviously, this is what the company would do. They would say, hey, we're going to pass that on to our uh, to the people ordering the food. How did they not think of this? Like, <laughs> it's not rocket science. All right, uh, let's move on. This story's too frustrating. All right, this story is a little upsetting because it has some details about uh, sex abuse and uh, uh, sex trafficking for minors, for like underage, ch- for basically for children. But I think it's an important story to hear because... It speaks to a larger thing that I am so passionate about, which is keep your kids off of social media. Listen to this. A federal way man is accused of trafficking two girls from Oregon, and they are uh, uh, the ages of 11 and 15 years old, which is is such a horrible story. How did he meet these girls? After messaging them on Instagram and Snapchat. He has pleaded not guilty to this. Uh, He says it didn't happen. King 5 has a story. Again, this is a little uncomfortable to listen to, but it's a good reminder. Keep your kids off of social media. It's the devil. Right now, Ezra Romana is being held here behind bars on a half a million dollars bail. Prosecutors argue that if he is released, he's likely to commit another crime against children. Tonight, we're learning more about Romana and his previous work at the King County Library System. The state of Washington versus Ezra Wamana. Ezra Wamana facing a judge for his accused crimes, trafficking 11 and 15 year old girls 300 miles from Oregon to his apartment in Federal Way. Count one human trafficking in the second degree. According to court documents, prosecutors say Wamana sexually assaulted one of the girls in January at his residence and allowed three of his friends to assault the other. Court documents show he then took the girls to Aurora Avenue and forced them into prostitution. When they were too scared to make money, he abandoned them. Bellevue police say the girls met a man in Seattle who brought them to his Bellevue home. That's where the girls are found based on their cell phone location. This investigation is far from over. Our uh, investigators are still looking at the other two suspects that were involved in uh, assaulting these uh, girls in Federal Way. New details about Wamana emerging, including that he worked in the King County Library until August of 2021. The library system said it's disturbed and saddened by the news. It went on to say we conduct background checks on all our employees and train them to address inappropriate conduct we observe in our libraries. We find, unfortunately, is that sex traffickers and sex buyers work in any industry. That's why Kirsten Foote, executive director of businesses ending slavery. I'm going to pause this here real fast. How did this guy get a job at the library? Is he like making book recommendations to kids and he's doing this? This is insane. In trafficking or best works to train employers about sex trafficking and spot the signs. That would be signs of, of confusion, signs of, of, of injury, signs of distress. Um, somebody not knowing where they are or why they're there. Does the minor seem to know who they're with? 
does the minor seem to trust the person they're with? If not, those are beginning indicators that need to be looked into more. Bellevue police say when Bonna started talking to the girls on social media and that potentially there could be more victims. All right, you heard that. Started talking about these, these minors on social media. Why would you let your kids have a cell phone and be on social media? There's just nothing good that can come of it. I've talked about this on the show many times. This is like a, I, I can't even believe that anybody would have a problem with this. And if you have a problem with this, I'm completely fine with it. And, I'm, and uh, I just disagree with you. Just fundamentally disagree with you. It's dangerous. It's bad. I don't like it. I don't think it's a good thing. It's not good for kids. They just had those, like Mark Zuckerberg was just talking in front of, um, uh, he was, uh, was it a Senate, a Senate hearing or a, uh, a congressional hearing of some sort? And he was saying, hey, we don't have any studies to show that there's any negative impacts on teenage girls when it comes to social media. So like specifically, they were talking about Instagram, things like that, because I think Facebook owns Instagram. And one of the senators said, actually, we have a study here from Instagram that says it negatively affects girls, specifically teenage girls. It's really bad for them. Why would you let this type of uh, evil into your kid's life? And the last time I talked about this, I got a bunch of text messages from parents who were saying, uh, listen, if you don't let your kids have social media accounts, how are they going to have friends? Like, how are they going to be able to be invited to any parties? Do you want your kids to be outcasts? And do you want them not to have any, any, anything to do on a Friday night? Well, if this is the price you have to pay, do you have to be scared of these weird, creepy losers on the internet getting access to your kids? And yes, I'm fine with my kids not having, um, access to an invite to a party. I've said this on the show. I abs- and I, I, this is a bet I actually made with Dory because he didn't think I'd be able to, <laughs> he didn't think I'd be able to do it. But I, but I think he would fully support me in this. I know he does. Uh, uh, but I told him I'm not letting my kids have a cell phone until they're 16. And even when they do get a cell phone at 16, it's going to be a dumb phone. They make these things called like, I think they're called jitterbugs or doodlebugs or something. But they're basically just like phones for old people and kids so that you can just use them as a phone. They're not made for the internet. They're not made for all this different stuff. They're not made for, you know, all your games and your apps. It's just made as a phone for kids to have so they can call home and mom and dad know where they are and that they can be safe. And so after football practice or whatever it is that your kid might be staying after school for, they can call you up and say, hey, mom and dad, I need a ride. So that's what I'm going to do with my kids. You might disagree with that. And in which case, God bless you. I hope it works out well for you. But... I see too many stories like this come across my desk where I just go, oh, I just shudder at this. So horrible. I'm glad they got this guy. And uh, I hope they figure out a way to get these social media accounts uh, uh, toned down and and protect kids. That's what they need to do. Just protect the kids. That's all we need. All right. uh, We got a lot more coming up on the show. Stick around. We're going to be right back here on Cairo Nights. You're listening to Cairo Nights with Jake Scorheim. Welcome back to Cairo Nights. It's Friday night. This is one of my favorite guys to talk to because he's just a fun guy to just have around. <laughs> Felix Bunnell. Thanks for hanging out, man. That's my job description. It says if you go to the Bonneville Files in Salt Lake City, it says Felix Bunnell has my social security number. It says just a fun guy to have around. Isn't that a but isn't that the kind of guy you want to be? Don't you want to just be a guy who people like having around? Yeah, I mean like there'd be some substance along with the fun. No, well, yeah. that's why you're okay. fun to have around. Okay. Yeah, right. though you always have great substance. In fact, the reason we're talking now is because you have kind of a fun 
mysterious story. I think last time we talked, we were talking about a mystery cabin. And now <laughs> we are talking about some mystery photos that were found in Sandpoint. Is that yeah, right? They're about Sandpoint. They were found in Seattle. So Magnuson Park is the big park on Lake Washington, sort of you know north of the city, uh, east of the University District, right? It's this multiple hundred acres. But it was a Navy base from the 1920s up until the 1970s and had a big airstrip. All this military aviation stuff happened there. And there's some photographs of it. There's, it's fairly well documented, right? There's, you know, like when this around-the-world flight took off in 1926, you know, or excuse me, 1924 and came back a couple months later when this big Soviet airplane visited in the late, in the late 20s. There's, there's some like, there's newspaper photos. that's relatively well documented. Yeah. But this woman, Carol Mandel, she moved back here recently, moved back into her family home. Turns out her great uncle, who died back in 1935 when he was only 30, a few years before that, in 1929, just after he graduated from the UW, he was a naval cadet, like learning to fly at Sandpoint. Oh, and, really? And he was a photographer. I, so you know what? I didn't even know that about Sandpoint. I because I'm it, not. It's a crazy. There's so much hidden aviation history. That was the first place Boeing delivered airplanes. They would truck stuff from the factory <laughs> to Sandpoint like wings and the fuselage and bolt it all together out there on the grass. And then they would take off there. And and they had to deliver it to the government or deliver it to whoever the private buyer was. That's like Boeing. That's the cradle of Boeing history is in that dog park. I had no idea. There's so much. And there's there's Navy hangars and stuff. There's some stuff left from like the 1930s. It looks like there's some like, uh, it looks like some executive buildings or some sort of office. Some really cool kind of art art deco, kind of art modern old hospitals, the old officers club, that sort of thing. The big gatehouse was built around 1940 right there at the the front gate there. Yeah. Um, I I remember it because when I was uh, young living in Seattle, not as a kid. That's right. You're not young anymore. Yeah, I'm not young anymore. But when I was a 20 something and I was here, that's where my friends and I would go to, um, you could rent boats and stuff. Like There's you a could terrific, rent, uh, aquatic center is fabulous. The right aquatic there. center yep. right there is yep. unbelievable. Yep. You can yep. rent like little sailboats and you can go out on the water and it's, I think it's part of uh, Seattle Parks Department maybe. And there might be a private organization that does it, but it's all open to the public. But see, because when they, when they opened the locks and the level of the lake dropped about nine feet, it created all this new land at that peninsula. There was going to be a public park there, but they're also, in the time of World War I, they're realizing aviation was a threat. We needed to have some way to defend ourselves against whatever enemy was going to come flying in from somewhere. Yeah. So the Navy um, was looking for a place to put up a Navy base. King County, you know, they saw an opportunity to have the Navy here. They bought the property and kind of put the package together and essentially gave it to the Navy in the early 20s. That's so cool. And the Army was there for a while. You know, Charles Lindbergh, when he went on his victory tour after he flew across the Atlantic— he landed, he touched down there with the Spirit of St. Louis on the grass runway there. The Spirit there. of St. Louis it landed was, at Sandpoint. It was parked in an old hangar that was at Sandpoint. The Navy brought this cool surplus hangar up in 1923, I think. And it was there for about 10 years. It got taken apart. It's still in use over at Port Townsend at the airport there. This incredible hangar that's more than 110 years old, I think. It was it was built in the teens. Anyway, that's where they parked the Spirit that's of St. Louis. That's in Port Townsend? Yeah. My, it, parent, my, my in-laws live in Port Townsend. I bet... I've been to that hangar. It's, there's a place called Tailspin Tommies is in there. It's like an aircraft maintenance facility right next yes. to the, the airport, which used to be the old Fort uh, Fort Townsend airstrip when the Army was there back in the you know in the 30s. You know what's so cool, and this is a total sidetrack, uh, but that airport that you're talking about now, yeah. they have this really cool program at, at that airport where this guy, uh, and if you're ever interested in doing a story, I can put you in touch with him, um, but he has basically started this program where he takes kids who have no background in aviation at all. And he used to say, if you guys come and work for me and if you come and do, you know, sweep up around here or whatever, <laughs> I will not only, uh, uh, 
give you know he, he gives them the job, but he also te- he teaches them to fly. That's cool. And Very so cool. then these kids all end up graduating high school. It's like kind of like a 4-H club, but with planes. Neat. They all end up graduating high school with pilots' licenses. Wow. And they can go into these avi- the aviation industry, which is just you know booming, and they always need aviators. And like that's if you want to be a professional pilot. That's a great place a to great start. Way to start, yeah. And so Very he takes cool. these kids from like maybe disadvantaged backgrounds and things that wouldn't have access to this otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And he teaches them, and it's all happening at the place like where it's it a, sounds like Charles Lindbergh flew his, has his plane in there. How cool well, is yeah, that? The hangar was the hangar was moved from standpoint, but yeah. um, so this aviator, this guy, um, his name was um, Ludwig Schroeder. He was tw- he was just a kid, twenty five in nineteen twenty nine. He's out at Sandpoint. He's, he's not his- German, is he? <laughs> <laughs> there, there's some debate about that. No, um, so he's at 29. He's a, he's a pretty active photographer, and he's taking close-up pictures. Like this big Soviet plane visited in 1929. It was like a either a goodwill mission or a propaganda effort, depending which side you were on. Yeah, they sent this giant uh, two-engine Soviet float plane. It it had kind of um, hopscotched down from Alaska. It stopped at Sam Point to have its floats changed to wheels. And they parked it in the hangar there, and he got some close-up pictures of it on the runway. This is there's, there was a rumor about this plane that like Boeing engineers had spied on it and gone over it like and taken kind of reverse engineered it and then <laughs> used it to inform Boeing designs a, a year or two later. Yeah, totally bogus. But yeah, the, of those, course. Those claims were made up by the Soviets in like the 1950s. Yeah, that the Americans had stolen this technology. And the, you look at this plane; it's based on some like 1919 German Junkers design or something. It looks it looks like a Soviet plane. It's all corrugated metal. There's a cockpit up on top. It looks like something out of a cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that landed do you, there. Do you remember the Antonov, the Soviet plane, the Antonov? The Antonov, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that sorry, the giant Antonov, one that yeah. burned in the hangar? At, it burned in, in the Ukraine? hangar. It was in Ukraine. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it got it got uh, it got burned in the hangar. I saw that. Do you remember when that came into Seattle? I do remember that. You got when to see that. Oh. I got my my dad took me because we love aviation in the okay. Square House. Okay. So we went out. We saw uh, that, and that was another Soviet big giant yeah. aircraft. <laughs> exactly. This is the 1929 version of it, and it was it's an an ANT four, and oh, what's that? Andre Nikolaev. Tupolev's because there's, there's Antonov is one of the big Soviet designers. Yes, Tupolev's the other one. Yeah. They're, they're like they're like the Boeing and so Airbus. They've been at it for so, a while. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're like Boeing, just less successful. <laughs> yeah, and they, he took all these great pictures of like plane crashes. I don't think anybody was killed or hurt, but they're these close-up pictures of these ancient, like the ancient now um, Navy float planes, like on their nose, floating in the water, being wow. pulled out of the lake with cranes. Again, we've heard about this stuff. We knew this stuff was happening. No one's ever seen photos of this stuff. And they're good photos. The guy was a good photographer. It's unclear if he was doing his own darkroom work and enlarging and stuff. Or yeah. if he's just using, like, you know, Bartels or whatever. Yeah. But he actually took some pretty amazing photos. There's two albums worth. Um, there's several people in the images. It's not clear who they are. There's one that's sort of a female aviator. We're not sure if she's someone's mom who got to go for, like, a fun flight one day or if it's, you know, some other, like, Amelia Earhart type person. Um, there's all these – there's amazing – uh, actual professional photographer photograph taken by Aishel Curtis, who's the brother of Edward Curtis, the guy famous for all the indigenous photos. Oh, okay. But it's like a, a big panoramic shot of all the squadron parked out there on what where that seaplane ramp is now, kind of where that sailing center is you're talking about sure. on the north part of Sandpoint. And they're all lined up and it's just, you know, it's one of these cameras that probably had a roll of film where you had to like twist it while you took the picture. It's probably yes. like three feet long or something. And it's beautifully composed photograph of this airplane squadron. Nobody's seen this stuff. And she before. just found these in a family photo book yeah, I mean, yeah, in she, her house. And, and uncle, you know, she said they never talked about her uncle. You know, because about five years after he was trained at Sandpoint, he died in a Navy crash in the he was in the Naval Reserves somewhere off the California coast. 
And so he's been sort of not exactly forgotten, but he wasn't a guy who was, you know, part of the typical discourse of like good old Uncle Ludwig. It was just yeah. something that he was he was known of. And they but they held on to his stuff. She has all his logbooks, all his pilot licenses from the twenties and stuff. Um so it's a pretty amazing archive. That I think, is an amazing and, and, story. And the family, like her her so her dad, her dad has a great story too. He was a um LTA navigator, aviator, lighter than air navig aviator in World War II. I mean, he flew blimps. Oh, wow. So I love blimps. And then her daughter's a pilot, Zeppelins. too. Yeah, her daughter's a commercial pilot. There's four generations of pilots in this family, and they have these photo albums. They don't want to hand them over to anybody yet, but I think someday, my hope is, and I think, they, I think they'll do this, they'll give it to the Museum of Flight or somewhere where these pictures, which are just priceless and That'd understanding. That'd be so cool. Because that Sandpoint history, it's just there's so much hidden there. There's very little interpretation. I think it should be a national park. I think you could do like a Cradle of Aviation National Park, maybe affiliated with whatever they have in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina or something. I, but it's all about kind of how it grew here from this effort of the government, King County, private citizens and the Boeing Company kind of coalesce and get track the Navy here. Then all this amazing aviation stuff happened. I just had no idea <laughs> that they had that they had that connection to, to history like that. I mean, I know that, you know, our area is kind of like this, this really fertile cradle of aviation. Yeah, absolutely. But I had no idea that, you know, Lindbergh landed his plane. There. I mean, like yeah. when you start thinking about history like that, how cool that we have that. It's just right there. And there's film footage of Lindbergh Landing that was re donated about five or six years ago to the University of Washington from a local, the local family that had a big fireworks factory in the Rainier Valley. They had like a 16 millimeter camera and they shot some pretty incredible footage of, wow. Spirit of you know, the Spirit of St. Louis kind of buzzes the field a few times and comes in for a landing and they show up being pushed into the hangar and then Lindbergh standing there with Mayor Bertha Landis. I love it. Female Mayor at the time. That's anyway, so fun. It's, it's all this stuff's connected. It makes my head kind of hurt when I no, start No, it's to think so fun it. because, you know, they find the, she finds this old <laughs> photo book and her uncle who passed away, you know, tragically yep but now he has this amazing legacy you know how many how many 70 years after he passed a almost 80 I think. 80 yeah. years no, after almost, he passed almost 90 it's like finding a treasure yeah. map you know it's like this is how yep. you find treasure and like it's, it's very cool yeah, i love when these stories i love people go to my northwest and look at the story there's images there if you see something that you recognize because there's lots of aviation people like your family and my family we love aviation and aviation history. yeah if you recognize Take a look at the photos someone. if you recognize the kinds of planes or the people who are in the pictures i would love to hear about it cool all right that's felix bunnell he's always got great stories Felix, thanks for hanging out, man. My pleasure. You're a good guy to hang out with. That's, <laughs> that's what it says on his resume. That's what it says that's, on the yeah. door of my office. If yeah. I had an office here at Cairo, that's what it would say. I'm going to talk to someone. We're going to get you an office. <laughs> All right, we got a lot more coming up. Stick around. We're going to be right back here on Cairo Nights. You're listening to Cairo Nights with Jake Scoreheim. Welcome back to Cairo Nights. It's the final segment of the show. I hope you guys have had fun tonight. We've had a lot of fun. Friday nights are kind of a blast. I really enjoy them. So I hope you've had fun too. And I hope after the show, whatever you plan on going out and doing, I hope that you guys are safe and drive safe and have a great time. Or if you're like me, you're probably just going to go home and eat ice cream for the rest of the night because that's what I like to do on a Friday night. I have reached that age where being out past 11 o'clock seems insane to me. I just go like, what kind of an insane person would go out past 11 o'clock. When I was a kid, I'll get to the story in a second, but when I was a kid, my dad used to say to me, and I thought he was nuts when he said this. He said, Jake, because I was used to ask for like uh, curfew extensions. I think my curfew when I was in high school was, um, maybe when I was a senior in high school, it was like 11 o'clock. I had to be in in the house somewhere. Like I could be over at friends' houses and see, but I had to be in somewhere at 11 o'clock. I couldn't be out and about doing things. And my dad used to always say, Jake, nothing good happens after 11 o'clock. I don't know why I just gave him a, a Western accent or a Southern accent, but because he doesn't have one. He's from Southern California. But he used to say, Jake, nothing nothing good happens after 11 o'clock. Just nothing. So just, you know, stay inside, have fun. 
still has the accent, whatever. Um, I used to think he was nuts. And now I totally agree with him. And now I'm a parent. I got three boys. I got four boys soon. In June, I will be the father of four boys uh, when my pregnant wife gives birth to our fourth son. And I'm going to be given that same advice. And I'll say, hey, kids, nothing good happens after 11 o'clock. So the answer is no. You're asking for an extension on your uh, curfew? The answer is no. Can't have it. You just can't do it. Um, I apologize for the Western accent, for the Southern accent. It's just not good. I don't know why I fell into that, uh, but I did. So apologies. Okay, this story I found really interesting and weird and strange. And I only have like a minute to deliver this to you. So I'm going to give it to you really fast. You guys know who Tyler Perry is? Um, he has a very famous character called Medea, and he stars as Medea, and he kind of like cross-dresses as this really interesting grandmother character. It's bizarre, but very, very successful, and he does a great job at it. He is like a uh, uh, kind of a genius, and he has started his own studio in Atlanta. Uh, he produces all his own stuff. He is a massive powerhouse in the entertainment industry. So he had been planning on expanding his Atlanta studios. He was going to build 12 new sound stages. Um, he has this massive 330-acre property, and he was going to like put $800 million into it. Super successful guy. Recently, he just was shown at this exhibit somebody came and did for them, for like, you know, uh, uh, producers and big name people. This thing called OpenAI Text-to-Video. Uh, with this, with just this thing called Sora. I don't know what that means, but it's called Sora. But it's this artificial intelligence. You can put in text, and then it will create images, like video and images, for you. So uh, Tyler Perry sees this thing, and he says, "We're going to stop the expansion. We're not going to expand the studios because what I just saw is going to change the way that filmmaking is made for the rest of time." Isn't that crazy? Like I don't know what he saw, but it's pretty crazy. He says, I no longer would have to travel to locations. If I wanted to be in snow in Colorado, I don't have to now make Colorado with snow. It's just text. If I wanted to write a scene on the moon, it's just text. AI can generate all of it, which is really scary because this might mean a lot of people lose their jobs. All right, that's the show. I hope you guys have had a great night. We've had a ton of fun. We really have. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday. But for right now, I got to get home. Night-night. Night-night.